0: If you think about your fears, your anxieties, most of them are horrible things that happened in the past that you'd like to avoid happening in the present, or they're scary shit that might happen in the future and you'd like to navigate around from the present. Very little of our fears, unless you're an action sport athlete in a dangerous situation or a soldier in combat or a boxer, martial artist kind of thing, are acute. Most of our fears are not present tense. So by removing past and future from our consciousness, anxiety disappears.
1: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work.
0: So it's great to be with you guys. It's fun to be back at Mind Valley. You guys heard a little bit about my background I'm an author, I'm a journalist. And I'm the co-founder and director of research at the Flow Genome Project. And what we study at the Flow Genome Project is ultimate human performance. What does it take to be your best when it matters most? What does it take to significantly level up your game? We're interested in paradigm shifting breakthroughs. Nothing is ever the same again. And really in a phrase, if you can sort of get past the hyperbole and get to the practical level of this, our interest is in what it takes to do the impossible. So we are in the middle of kind of a giant revolution in what it takes to achieve the impossible. And it is counterintuitive. It is strange. It is unusual. It turns a lot of our old ideas about high performance upside down. And it sits at the nexus of kind of two different lines of inquiry. One is the science of peak performance, the science of high performance. And the second is the science of spirituality. So I'm going to essentially tell you the same story twice. Starting at the exact same point, we're going to end up at two different places and then they're going to come together. This nexus has been, was the topic of my most recent book, Stealing Fire, so if you're curious, that's where to go farther. But I thought as a way of kind of introducing this idea, of what does it take to do the impossible and the high performance side, I would sort of start where I started, because I came to this question of what does it take to do the impossible through a pretty unusual door. I walked in through the door of journalism. I became a journalist in the early 1990s. And back then, action sports were just starting to happen. Surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, the like. So back then, if you could write and ski, or write and surf, or write and rock climb, there was work. I couldn't do any of those things very well, but I really needed the work. So I lied to my editors, and I was lucky enough to spend the better portion of 10 years chasing professional, what were then called extreme athletes, and now are called action adventure sport athletes, around mountains and across oceans. And if you are not a professional athlete and you spend all your time chasing professional athletes around, you're going to break things. I broke a lot of things. What that meant is I got to take a lot of time off. I'd be hanging out. I'd snap this or that, and I'd take three or four months off. And when I came back, the progress I saw was astounding. It was amazing. It was Leaps of bounds kind of stuff. Tricks and feats and activities that were absolutely completely impossible just three or four months ago, people believed they were never been done, never going to be done, weren't just being done, they were being iterated upon. And this caught my attention and it caught my attention for a couple of reasons. First of all, back in the early 1990s, action and adventure sport athletes were a rowdy, irreverent punk rock bunch without a lot of natural advantages. Most of the people I knew had horrific childhoods, came from broken homes. They had very, very little education and they had almost no money. And yet, here they were on a semi-regular basis, reinventing what was possible for our species. And by reinventing, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on action sports, but I wanna give you one example. Surfing is a thousand year old sport and evolution was incredibly, incredibly slow. The fourth century AD, until 1996, biggest wave anybody had ever surfed was 25 feet. Above that, it was believed absolutely impossible. There are physics papers written about how it's impossible to paddle into waves over 25 feet tall. Today, as you can see from this photo, surfers are routinely towing into waves well over 100 feet tall and they're paddling into waves over 80 feet tall. This is nearly exponential growth in ultimate human performance in two decades. And it was happening all across the boards in action sports. And I wanted to understand why. I also knew that if I didn't take my question out of action sports and into other domains, I was gonna kill myself. I had broken about 80 bones at that point, and I had to switch. So that's what I did. I took this question of what does it take to do the impossible into pretty much every domain imaginable and wrote books about them. So Tomorrowland, for example, is an investigation of those kind of maverick innovators who turn science fiction ideas into science fact technology. Bold was a look at upstart entrepreneurs, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, people who had been world changing businesses in near record time against incredible odds. In abundance, I teamed up my good friend Peter Diamandis, started the XPRIZE and Singularity University, and we looked at entrepreneurs who were tackling grand global impossible challenges, stuff that 20 years before was the sole problems of large corporations and big governments, healthcare crises, poverty, energy scarcity, water shortages, small teams of people were succeeding against these incredible challenges. And the interesting thing is it doesn't actually matter what domain you look at. It doesn't matter where you go. Whenever you see the impossible becoming possible, whenever you're seeing peak performance, you're seeing a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. You may know flow by other names. You may call it runner's high or being in the zone. If you play basketball, it's being unconscious. If you're a stand-up comic, it's the forever box. Flow is a technical term and we'll talk about where it comes from in a second, but it is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness. It is a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And more specifically, it refers to those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. When you get so focused on the task at hand, everything else just vanishes. Action and awareness will start to merge. Concentration is so focused on the present moment that your self vanishes. Time dilates. It's a fancy way of saying it passes strangely. Sometimes, occasionally, it'll slow down you get a freeze frame effect from I mean, an who's been in a car crash or seen the matrix. More frequently, it speeds up and five hours go by in like five minutes. And throughout, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Flow science itself is very old. It dates back to the late 1870s, which was sort of the birth of the fields that became cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. So in the 1870s was the first time somebody noticed, and it was actually a geologist named Albert Heim, who noticed that altered states of consciousness seemed to have a huge impact on performance. This idea got carried forward, it got explored by William James, often called the godfather of American psychology. He taught at Harvard, was a physiologist, was a physician, was a psychologist, and was a philosopher. Real breakthroughs took place in the 1960s and 70s when this man, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, was often called the godfather of flow psychology. He was the chairman of the University of Chicago psychology department, and he did the largest global investigation of optimal performance anybody ever undertaken. Tens of thousands of people took part. And what he discovered is four key things about flow. The first is the state is definable. It has eight core characteristics. And I mentioned these things to you before. The merger of action and awareness, complete concentration in the present moment, the vanishing of self, time dilation, and so forth. Because it is definable, it is also measurable. So we have extremely well-validated psychometric instruments for studying flow. We don't yet have a physiological flow detector, though our organization and a bunch of other people are working hard on it, but we have great psychometric questionnaire-based instruments. The next thing Csikszentmihalyi discovered is flow is universal. It shows up in everyone. Anywhere provided certain initial conditions are met. So flow is how we are hardwired for high performance. It is the biology of high performance. We've evolved to do it. He also gave flow its name. And the reason is when he was running around the world asking people about the times in their life when they felt their best and they performed their best, everybody said the same thing. They said, well, when I'm in this state, Every action, every decision flows seamlessly, perfectly, effortlessly from the last. Flow is a phenomenological definition, right? It describes how the state makes us feel. Flow feels flowy. What's interesting about that feeling is for flow to feel flowy. For every decision and action to flow seamlessly, effortlessly from the last, you're getting a good quick look at what the state is actually doing. It is as close to near-perfect decision-making, near-perfect high-speed decision-making as we can get. Now, notice I said near-perfect, not perfect. You can make all kinds of bad decisions in flow and they're gonna feel amazing. They're gonna feel like you're dead on. In fact, Scott Schmidt, one of the early extreme skiers, used to say, flow makes me feel like Superman, up until the moment I'm not. So important words of caution on that one. The other thing that High discovered and probably the most important discovery is that flow is fundamental overall well-being to life satisfaction and to meaning in fact it is the most fundamental component of those terms we'll call them terms in his research the people who scored off the charts for overall life satisfaction for the most meaningful lives these are the people with the most flow in their lives so after High was done doing this kind of foundational work people went okay flow is optimal performance next question how optimal what the hell are we talking about The answer is pretty optimal. What we now know is that in sports and athletics, pretty much every gold medal or world championship that's ever been won has a flow state at its heart. Flow is responsible for significant progress in the arts, major breakthroughs in science and technology. Business, we have some interesting and really compelling research done by the McKinsey consultancy, and they found after a 10 year study that top executives in flow report being five times more productive five times more productive is 500% more productive. It means you go to work on Monday, spend Monday in a flow state, you can take Tuesday through Friday off and get as much done as your steady state peers. Two days a week in flow, you are 1000% more productive than the competition. Which is interesting, one of the things that's going on all across business, and it's my organization a bunch of other organizations, is whole companies are being trained up in flow right and left. Why? Because they're going to be 1,000% more productive than the competition. Within 10 years, it is going to be very difficult to keep up without doing this kind of work. The next question people asked after they figured out that this is optimal performance is, where is this coming from? Right? What is actually going on? And here, we've gotten a huge assist from neuroscience. Neuroscience is accelerating wildly, wildly. Biotechnology in general right now is moving at four times the speed of Moore's Law. So it is doubling in power every four to five months and neuroscience and brain imaging technology is coming along for the ride. So for the very first time over the past 10 to 15 years, we've been able to peer under the hood of flow and figure out where it's coming from and why it's coming now. There are still holes in this research. We can drive buses through. We know a hell of a lot more than we ever did. This, by the way, is one example of that research. So this is me taking part in an experiment designed by Stanford neuroscientist, David Eagleman. And I've been hoisted 150 feet in the air and I'm being dropped into a circus net. I've got a perceptual chronometer on my wrist and we're trying to figure out why time passes so strangely in flow, which we have made some progress on. And I'll also tell you after that experiment, eight months of chiropractic work till I can walk right again. So I have bled for this research for you people. Just want you to know that. And what we've discovered turns a lot of our old ideas about high performance upside down. So the old idea about optimal performance is something you're probably familiar with. It's what's now known as the 10% brain myth. It's the idea that at any one point we're only using a small portion of our brain. So ultimate performance, AKA flow, it must be the full brain on overdrive. We had it completely backwards. Turns out, in flow, we're not using more of the brain, we're using less of it, a lot less. In flow, we experience what's known as transient hypofrontality. Transient meaning temporary, hypo, H-Y-P-O, it's the opposite of hyper, means to slow down, to shut down, to deactivate. And frontality refers to your prefrontal cortex, part of your brain that's right back there. It's a critical portion of your brain, long-term planning, complex logical decision-making, your sense of morality, your sense of willpower, this is all prefrontal cortex. In flow, this portion of your brain gets really, really quiet. This has a huge impact both on cognition and performance. Why does time pass so strangely in flow? Turns out time is calculated all over your prefrontal cortex and as parts of it wink out, we can no longer separate past from present from future. Instead, we're plunged into a state that researchers talk about as the deep now. Deep now has some big benefits on performance you think about your fears, your anxieties, most of them are horrible things that happened in the past that you'd like to avoid happening in the present, or they're scary shit that might happen in the future and you'd like to navigate around from the present. Very little of our fears, unless you're an action sport athlete in a dangerous situation or a soldier in combat or a boxer, martial artist kind of thing, are acute. Most of our fears are not present tense. So by removing past and future from our consciousness, anxiety disappears. All of our stress hormones flush out of our system. Same thing happens to your sense of self. Self is essentially a network. It's a bunch of different structures in the prefrontal cortex and a couple other parts of your brain working together in concert. And like any other network, when the nodes start to get down, produce, go down, pretty soon the whole network collapses and your self disappears. Again, huge impact on performance. As your self disappears, So does your inner critic, that nagging, always-on, defeatist voice in your head. When you're in flow, that voice goes silent. Now, emotionally, we experience this as liberation, as freedom. You're actually getting out of your own way. Performance-wise, it's a huge boost. Creativity goes way up because you're no longer doubting all your neat ideas. Risk-taking goes way up because you're no longer standing in your own way. Simultaneously to these changes in neural anatomical function, we're also seeing brain waves shift. So normally, right now you're paying attention to me, your brain is probably in beta. It's a fast moving wave. It's where we are when we're awake, we're alert. Below beta is a slower wave known as alpha. This is daydreaming mode. This is where you can sort of move from idea to idea to idea without a whole lot of internal resistance. Underneath that is theta, much slower wave, usually shows up only when we're in REM sleep or in the hypnagogic state as we're falling asleep. The theta is where you're going from ID to ID with no resistance. So you're thinking about a green sweater and it becomes a green elephant and becomes a green planet. That's theta. Flow exists on the borderline between alpha and theta. It's a state of much heightened creativity, but more interestingly, it's also the ready condition for a gamma spike. Now, gamma is a totally different wave. It's a very fast moving wave and it shows up a lot of different cases, but it shows up primarily during binding, which is when the brain ties a whole bunch of new ideas together into a f- firm idea. It's the brainwave signature of the aha moment. What this means is flow pushes us right on the edge of that aha moment. So when you're in flow, you are always on the edge of creative breakthrough. Finally, perhaps most importantly, we see a big shift in neurochemistry when we're in flow and there's a lot more work to be done here and there's a lot of stuff we don't know. But what we think we know is that five of the most potent neural chemicals the brain can produce show up in flow. Now, all five of them have huge impacts on performance. Norepinephrine, dopamine, these are focusing chemicals. Endorphins are pain blockers. Nandamine is a pain blocker that amplifies lateral thinking. Serotonin is a calming feel-good chemical, pro-social chemical as well all of these things have huge impacts on physical performance so fast twitch muscle response goes up our sense of pain goes down strength increases more importantly is how they impact cognition and i'm going to talk about how they impact the three sides of the so-called high performance triangle this is motivation learning and creativity so besides being performance enhancing chemicals all five of those compounds are pleasure drugs, and the five most potent pleasure drugs the brain can produce. Just to give you an idea, so these are endogenous chemicals. They're internal to our system, and they're mimicked by exogenous chemicals. So endorphins, for example, are the internal version of external opiates like heroin and morphine and oxycontin. And just to give you an idea, there are about 20 different endorphins in the brain. The most common one is 100 times more potent than medical morphine. So when I say these are pleasure drugs, these are very, very pleasurable. And usually you don't get all five at once. To give you an example, romantic love. This is one of the best feelings we get on the planet. It's primarily dopamine and norepinephrine. That's that cocktail that we call romantic love. Flow gives you three additional pleasure chemicals on top of this. So flow is a huge boost in motivation. So when we see that 500% spike in productivity that McKinsey discovered, it's because of these addictive feel-good chemicals. Now scientists, they don't like the word addictive. It's got bad connotations, so instead they call flow autotelic, meaning it's end in and of itself, or they talk about it as the source code of intrinsic motivation. We see something similar with learning. Quick shorthand for how learning and memory works in the brain, the more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, better chance that experience is gonna move from short-term holding into long-term storage, which is why in studies done on soldiers and radar operators and snipers, skill acquisition inflow goes up 200 to 500%. In fact, there's a really cool study that was done by a friend of ours, Chris Burke, who works at Advanced Brain Monitoring, you can find it online, B-E-R-K-A. They took soldiers or they took uh, snipers who had novice snipers, people who had never fired a bow before or never fired a handgun or a rifle. They put them into flow and they trained them up to expert level. It took 50% less time. So we've all heard about Malcolm Gladwell's fabled 10,000 hours to mastery. This is Anders Ericsson's research. What the research also shows is that flow can cut that in half. Creativity is probably a bigger story. So creativity is one of these terms that is often mystified But if you look under the hood of creativity, what you often see is a recombinatory process. It's the product of the brain taking in novel information, using it to connect with older ideas and create something startling new out of that connection. In flow, all the brain's information processing machinery gets amped up thanks to this neurochemistry. So we take in more information per second, so data acquisition goes up. We pay more attention to that incoming information, so salience increases. We find faster connections between that incoming information and older ideas. So pattern recognition goes up. We find faster connections between that incoming information and really far flung disparate outside the box ideas. So lateral thinking goes up. And on the back end of creativity, because it's not enough to come up with new ideas, right, you have to turn them into something and go public with it, we also see risk taking getting amplified. So the neurochemicals and flow surround the creative process which is why in studies run by my organization, some at Harvard, some at the University of Sydney, we see creativity increase in flow 400 to 800%. So I told you I was gonna tell you a tale of two simultaneous revolutions. So we're gonna stop here and we're gonna go back, right? This was a look at the science of high performance and sort of where we are today. Now we're gonna jump back and look at the science of spirituality or more specifically, the science of mystical experiences. So. We're gonna go back to this slide. 1901, William James writes a book called Varieties of Mystical Experiences. And what James was interested in was in all sorts of mystical experiences. So he went around the globe, interviewing anybody he could find, all kinds of different experiences, Tibetan Buddhist meditators, all the way through Quaker meetings and so forth. He studied flow, he studied a whole ton of stuff. And what he noticed and what he said is, doesn't seem to matter when you're looking at psychedelic experiences, when you're looking at trance states, when you're looking at religious states, when you're looking at meditative states, when you're looking at flow states produced by endurance sports or action sports. All these things seem very, very similar to me. And he said, even if you don't believe the kind of religious wrapping around these states, you have to think two things are real. One, these experiences are psychologically real, meaning however they're gussied up, on the other side of these experiences, people are different, happier, more content, more passionate about their lives. So these states are psychologically real no matter what else you want to say about them. Now, that idea didn't hang too well in psychology. Freud came next, and psychology took about a hundred year detour around this idea. First of all, Freud was a hardcore atheist, right, wanted nothing to do with religion. He said that religion was comparable to childhood neuroses, and that was it for Freud. So science became very, very atheistic at that point. And the other point was he didn't feel it was the job of psychology to explore these states. He wasn't interested in psychological possibilities. He thought psychology should be about curing pathological problems. And that's essentially what happened for about 100 years. We took a 100-year detour around these ideas until positive psychology brought them back a little bit. But that doesn't mean the work stopped. In fact, in the 1950s, this man, Wilder Penfield, made a huge discovery. So Wilder Penfield is one of the early neurosurgeons, and he was an epilepsy expert. And what he was doing is he was opening the skulls of epileptics who were having horrible seizures. And you can do that because there aren't a whole lot of nerve endings in the skull. So you can do it with local anesthetic and patients can be awake. And what he was doing was using a mild electric current to probe various regions of their brain. He was trying to produce what is known as an aura, not the way you think. An aura in epilepsy is what comes on before an epileptic seizure. So it's often a really strong smell. Sometimes it's bright lights or noises. This is a precursor to a seizure. So he was trying to stimulate an aura and then he would scoop that out. So interestingly, when he started stimulating people's temporal parietal junction, where the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe come together, especially on the right side and also in the right temporal lobe, People started having crazy experiences, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences. They would feel sense presence, which is the technical term for the feeling of a god or a ghost or a demon in the room with you. They'd have hallucinations and see visions, which was an amazing, amazing discovery. Because what he discovered is that mystical experiences were biologically real. There was something going on in the brain that was producing them. Most of this work sort of continued a little underground for a while until the late 1990s when this man, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who was one of the bravest researchers to come along, when there was tremendous academic pressure not to study these kinds of topics. Andrew Newberg was really interested in consciousness. He was at the University of Pennsylvania and he really wanted to understand what is known as cosmic unity or unity, which is the feeling of becoming one with everything. And Dr. Newberg's feeling was that this experience of oneness, it's often been called the perennial philosophy because it shows up in pretty much every religion and mystical tradition on earth, and it did long before the era of mass communication. So he asked a simple question, if it's everywhere at once, either the whole world is having a mass hallucination which might be possible and might be interesting, or there's something biological going on. So what Dr. Newberg did is he took two different patient populations, Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns, who both experience a version of unity, right? In Tibetan Buddhism, it's absolute unitary being, it's oneness with everything. For Franciscan nuns, it's unia mystica, which is oneness with Jesus or oneness with God's love. And what he discovered after putting people in an early version of the fMRI braze scanners, known as a SPEC scanner, is that when people feel one with everything, what he calls the orientation area and is actually the right parietal lobe, the same spot that Wilder Penfield noticed, gets really, really quiet. It deactivates. So in the same way that flow deactivates the prefrontal cortex, what's going on here? And the reason that happens, it's an efficiency exchange. When you need extra energy for attention, the brain has a limited energy budget, It's got a fixed energy budget, and it's an energy hog. It uses up 25% of our energy simply at rest. So when the brain needs extra energy for attention, like it does in deep meditation, it starts to turn off non-critical areas. This is what happens in flow, and it also happens in meditation. And in meditation, in really deep meditation, not only does the prefrontal cortex start to shut down, but this right parietal lobe shuts down. And this is called, he could update the orientation area because it helps us orient ourselves in space. This portion of the brain separates self from other, it does this by drawing a boundary around the self and say you end here and the rest of the world begins. Now, this boundary is flexible. Anybody who's had a child knows that when you hold a small child after a little while, you can no longer tell where you end and the child begins. Right, We all have had the experience. Blind people can feel the sidewalks through the tips of their cane. Tennis players will become one with their racket. Right, All the same phenomenon. It's the right temporal lobe shutting down. And when this portion of the brain shuts down, no information in or out, the brain concludes, it has to conclude that at this particular moment, you are one with everything. So this is also where I sort of drop into this story. I was at this point researching surfers and I was researching surfing and flow states. And one of the things that kept coming up is I kept talking to surfers who would secretly take me aside and be like, psst, when I'm in a tube, when I'm surfing, I'm becoming one with the ocean. Don't tell anybody. And they were totally embarrassed and nobody was talking about it, but they would tell me these stories about becoming one with the wave. And I was like, wait a minute, hold on. This is really, really similar to what my buddy Andy has discovered in the lab, and we were talking about it. And I said at that point, I was like, hey, do you think it's possible that like the flow state that surfers are experiencing, the focus is as intense as what meditators are experiencing? And he said, well, I, th- I think it, it may be, and we've looked at it. And the answer is yes, that's exactly what's going on. That was the start of sort of a gold rush into the science of mystical experiences. Over the past 10 to 15 years, pretty much every mystical experience you can think of what is known as the entire ecstatic spectrum. So these are all the experiences that are north of happy, trance states, flow states, states of awe, contemplative states, meditative states, technologically mediated states, and we'll talk about those in a moment, sexually provoked states like tantric states, mystical states, even transformative festivals. Research out of Oxford on what's going on in people's brains at Burning Man, shows that festival and other transformational festivals are also producing these same states of consciousness. Turns out that the neurobiology of the ecstatic, the entire kind of north of happy spectrum, shares very similar kind of underlying foundations. There's lots of individual differences, but the foundation is pretty similar. We see deactivations in the prefrontal cortex, the default mode network goes down, the temporal parietal lobe, also gets really, really quiet. We see brainwaves move to that alpha-theta borderline. We also see some combination, usually, or at least a handful of the big five neurochemicals, which is why all of these states phenomenologically produce the same experiences. So what we know about all of these altered state experiences, all of these north of happy experiences, is they do the same thing. Selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. In other words, prefrontal cortex goes away, so our sense of self disappears. Prefrontal cortex goes away, so time disappears. Effortlessness is a reference to that huge spike in feel-good neurochemistry. And when that's coursing through your system, you often feel like you're being propelled through your life by forces that are greater than you, right? Simultaneously, we see richness, which is short for information richness, which is why all of the brain's information processing machinery starts getting amplified in these experiences. So all of these experiences feel very, very similar. Interesting thing is they're also having similar impacts. And we see this on both sides of the spectrum. So we're going to look at the healing side first before we look at the high performance side. On the healing side, I love the PTSD research for this because it's very, very interesting. So back in the late 90s, the early 2000s, a guy named Rick Doblin, who is the head of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research and a psychologist named Michael Mitherhofer, who's down in South Carolina in the States, wanted to know if they could use MDMA, so the same psychoactive that's inside of ecstasy or molly, to treat PTSD. And after an incredibly brave and hard fight, they finally got to test this research, and you've probably heard about it at this point. And what they discovered is combining MDMA with talk therapy into what's known as psychedelic therapy. So you're not just taking a drug. You're taking a drug with a lot of attention being placed on set and setting. You have a therapist with you. They found that one to two sessions of MDMA therapy was enough to completely cure or significantly reduce, so people could get way off their meds, symptoms of PTSD. That was amazing. It was Breakthrough research. It's fantastic. And in fact, it's still ongoing. MDMA has proved so successful with this extreme anxiety disorder that we're now seeing tests of it for normal anxiety disorders and depression. And those are moving forward. In fact, the FDA in the United States is so excited by this research into MDMA that they have fast-tracked drug development, which has never actually happened before. And they're doing it with what is still a schedule one drug, meaning it's totally illegal and it supposedly has no medicinal benefit. America, strange place. (laughs) But this research was only the beginning because the next thing that happened is the army came along and they said, well, this is great, this is fantastic, but there are a lot of people who don't want to have to take a mind altering substance to get this kind of result. So what can we do? So at Camp Pendleton, they reran the exact same experiment. They've now done it with over a thousand soldiers with PTSD and they replaced MDMA with surfing and the flow states produced by surfing. They also used talk therapy, so it's the exact same protocol with surfing instead of the psychedelic substance. What they found was that five weeks of talk therapy and surfing therapy for flow was enough to completely cure or significantly reduce symptoms of PTSD in soldiers. They re-ran the same experiment with mantra meditation, actually. I think they used TM, and they found that four weeks of TM in conjunction with top therapy was enough to significantly reduce or completely cure PTSD. What we're seeing here, three different treatments. These are, I mean, think about this for a second. You've got people taking MDMAs. We're thinking ravers, surfers and meditators. They're not three groups of people you normally think of overlapping, and yet under the hood neurobiologically, all these things are doing the same thing because what's going on in your brain is very, very similar. And we are also seeing this on the other side of the spectrum. So what we've discovered is that the same tools that will take the subpower up to normal can take normal all the way up to Superman. So for example, A couple years ago, five, six, seven years ago, my organization, the Flow Genome Project, got to take part in what was known as the Red Bull Creativity Study. This is the largest meta-analysis of creativity research ever conducted. And what they learned after reviewing like 30,000 studies in creativity, they learned two things about creativity. One, they learned that creativity is the most important skill for success in the 21st century, big surprise. Two, we absolutely suck training people to be more creative. We're terrible at it. We are super bad. And the reason is we keep trying to train up a set of skills. And what we really need to be training up is a state of mind. And here's what I mean. We have found that three, as little as three 20 minute open senses meditations is enough to heighten creativity. What are, Significant increase in fluency, flexibility, originally and elaboration. Thank you for the notes. (laughs) Four fundamental components of creativity. So three 20-minute open-senses meditation, enormous spike in creativity. We see the same thing with psychedelics. James Fadiman has done phenomenal research on microdosing, taking tiny, tiny, tiny bits of psychedelics That actually produce sub-perceptual changes. So you don't actually feel your consciousness shift that much, right? A lot of people right now, especially on the West Coast, have been microdosing at work. We're seeing it all over Silicon Valley. I've been in huge major companies, and people come up to me, like managers have said, My entire team of engineers are microdosing on a regular basis at work, which just sounds insane. Until You stop to realize that what James Fadiman discovered is that microdosing can amp up creativity by 200%. And of course, there's the research in flow. And by the way, just so you wanna know where that creativity is coming from in psychedelics, what you're looking at is this is the brain connectivity. On the left, this is your brain under normal conditions. If you really wanna amplify creativity, you want all kinds of far-flung connections to the brain. You want lots of the areas of the brain talking to each other. On the left is your brain under normal conditions. On the right is your brain on psilocybin, the magic and magic mushrooms. So this is where that boost in creativity is coming from. This is also why consciousness hacking has gone mainstream. In the US, we've got 44% of American companies are rolling out mindfulness training programs this year. Yoga is now a billion dollar industry right and as of 2017 psychedelics have been proven to be phenomenal treatments exciting treatments for depression anxiety ptsd and all kinds of addiction nocd this is huge research and there's tons to go on now i want to bring it all back together right all this stuff has happened and where are we today The good news is what all this research is telling us is that consciousness is hackable. And I wanna be really clear, you don't have to take a mind altering substance to do any of this. I'm gonna talk about what we know from flow. So what we've discovered about flow, I said earlier, flow shows up in anyone, anywhere provided certain conditions are met. What are those conditions? We now know there are 20 different flow triggers. You're looking at the list. There are probably, by the way, way more than 20, but this is all we've discovered. And they come in two varieties. There are individual triggers, what it's going to take to drive me into flow or you into flow. And then there is a shared collective version of a flow state, what's known as group flow. This is essentially a team performing at their very best. And we probably all had some experience with group flow. If you've ever seen kind of like a fantastic music performance where the band just comes together and the level of the performance goes through the roof, You've seen a fourth quarter comeback in football or basketball, usually group flow. If you've taken part in a phenomenal brainstorming session where ideas are just flying off the wall and real progress is getting made, that's group flow in action. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but what all of these triggers do, what they all have in common, flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, the right now. That's what all these triggers do. They drive attention into the present moment. If I was going to talk about this neurobiologically, I would say most of these triggers either boost norepinephrine and dopamine, which are, besides being underneath romantic love, they're the brain's principal focusing chemicals, or they lower cognitive load a little bit. So they lighten the load on the working memory. Both cases drives attention into the present moment. So I'm going to break down, just so you get a sense of it, three different flow triggers. And the reason I chose these three is Flow Genome Project just completed a giant creativity study, one of the deepest studies on flow and creativity that's ever been done. It's a pilot study, so I shouldn't be talking too much about it. We've teamed up with neuroscientists at USC to take it to the next step, and then we'll publish it and I'll be able to talk about it. But one of the things that the research shows in this early phase is that there are three triggers that we need to maximize creativity. and I kind of figure I should go over these things with you guys because I'm assuming most people in this room are doing something creative for a living. Don't see a lot of accountants here. Could be wrong. So the first flow trigger that you need for creativity is the most obvious. It's complete concentration. So when I work with organizations, when we work with companies, walk into the companies, the first thing I say is if you can't hang a sign on your door that says, fuck off, I'm flowing, you're sunk. You can't do this work. What the research shows is if you want to maximize flow, you need 90 to 120 minutes of uninterrupted concentration. That means no cell phone, no email, no instant messaging, no Facebook, no Twitter, none of that. If you run or work for an organization that has one of those policies that messages must be returned in 15 minutes and emails in a half an hour, It's a fucking disaster for high performance. It's a nightmare, you're literally destroying the basis of peak performance, impossible without it. So the next flow trigger that I wanna talk about that shows up as critical for creativity is what's known as the challenge skills balance. Now this is often called the golden rule of flow, the most important of flows triggers. Here's the idea, flow follows focus. So we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task at hand Slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch but not snap. Now it is a little increase. The number that people have put on, and it's not a real number, it's a metaphorical number, is a 4% difference. 4% Greater, the, ch- the challenge is 4% greater than your skills, it's perfect for flow. So, what do I mean by 4%? Why am I using that number? Originally, it came from a back of the envelope calculation between Chick Set Me High, the godfather of flow, and a Google mathematician. And they were just trying to put a number on it. We took that 4% into the Flow Genome Project over the past couple of years and have been running experiments on it. And we found that it was a lot closer and a lot more accurate than we anticipated. What I like about it is it's so small. Now, 4% is tricky, right? If you are shyer, meeker, a little bit less than a high achiever, 4% is tricky because it's outside your comfort zone, right? It's just outside your comfort zone, but you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable to do this work. If you're interested in peak performance, you got to learn how to suffer a little. There's just no way around it, and you gotta learn how to be afraid because you're always gonna be pushing past your skill set. You're gonna be pushing on your challenge. For peak performers, for people who are really driven, this number is tricky because peak performers will take on shit that is 20%, 30%, greater than their skill set, and they will lock themselves out of the state of peak performance needed to achieve that. So if you're wired that way, take your task and chunk it down into smaller subtasks until it gets into that uncomfortable but still manageable zone, the challenge skills balance. And if I were to put this emotionally, by the way, I would say that flow sits not on but near the midpoint between boredom and anxiety boredom, not enough stimulation here, I'm not paying any attention to what's going on. Anxiety, whoa, way too much, right? In between, it's what's known as the flow channel. This is where the challenge skill sweet spot sits. The other thing that we discovered is phenomenal for creativity is immediate feedback. So this is again tricky in today's corporate world, right? Most of us, we get annual reviews or quarterly reviews. What the research shows for creativity to go up, much, much, much closer reviews. So for example, I discovered in publishing, editors don't really edit these days, doesn't happen that much, they're too busy, they're more like movie producers than they are like editors. And so I'll get feedback on my books, maybe twice a book, three times a book and that's it. So I've hired somebody who is my feedback editor and all they do is they, a couple times a week, they read everything I've written and they tell me if it's boring, arrogant or confusing. Which I've discovered is my minimal feedback for flow. That's the feedback I need to kind of navigate through my writing. So, if you really want to amp up clear creativity, find a feedback buddy. Find somebody on social media you can bounce ideas off much more frequently. Easiest way to do this. Here's the really great news about all this. Turns out, this stuff is remarkably easy to train, and that's new information. If you would've talked to me 10 years ago He said, Stephen, is there anything you bet your life on about flow? I would have said it's impossible to train up. In fact, when the Flow Genome Project started, we were working only with professional and Olympic athletes and top CEOs. We didn't think anybody else was gonna be good at this. We were so wrong. So a couple years ago, we teamed up with Google and we ran a joint learning exercise. So over the course of six weeks, we took about 80 different Googlers from all over the company. So we had marketing and sales and engineering and facilities across the boards, didn't matter. And we trained them up in four high performance basics. And I mean basics, get enough sleep at night kind of basics. And then the use of four flow triggers. And after six weeks of training, about an hour of homework a day, we saw 35 to 80% increase in flow. This stuff is incredibly easy to train. It's because we are all biologically hardwired for flow, so a little information can make you plenty dangerous. Interestingly, if you're still too lazy to work with the psychological triggers and you'd like a technological fix, well, what you're looking at is transcranial direct stimulation. This is the Air Force. This is a radar operator. They have zapped her brain artificially knocking out the prefrontal cortex, the huge pulse of electromagnetic energy. It's inducing a 20 to 40 minute artificial flow state. When this happens, you're seeing an 8X increase in pattern recognition, which is fundamental to radar operators. So we're seeing this go on. I will tell you, by the way, the technology for this is pretty simple. You can do with a car battery and some electrodes. Don't get it wrong. You can make yourself really stupid for a long time if you get this wrong. This turns out to be a very, very, very precise science. The other thing that we've discovered this was work done by Richard Davidson, who's a guy I didn't mention, but he did, at the same time, Andy Newberg was doing kind of the brain work, uh, the brain scans with fMRI. Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin was doing fantastic work on Tibetan Buddhists, people who had 34 years of meditation training. And what he discovered, one of the things he discovered is huge amounts of gamma in their brains, right, perching them on the edge of creativity. So what has happened since is we are now starting to record the brain waves of monks with this much training. And then we're using neurofeedback to train people into the state. And we're getting significant, significant, significant results people able to do much more incredible things in as little as three weeks, so we're now starting to see technologically induced altered states of consciousness, and you guys can actually take advantage of some of this technology. This is the website for the Flow Genome Project. On the landing page, you're going to say a big thing that says, take the quiz. The quiz is a flow profile. It basically is a blend of the big five personality traits mixed with the 20 flow triggers. So, what it will tell you is on the other side, and it's free, it will say if you're this kind of person, you're likely to find more flow in this direction. So, it's a great place to start if you're interested in more flow in your lives. So, one last thing I want to tell you, is this is super interesting. When myself and Jamie Wheel, my partner in the Flow Genome Project, were writing Stealing Fire, I want, early on, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, a guy named Salim Ismail. Salim Ismail was a former head of innovation at Yahoo. He was, at that time, he was the first president or executive director of Singularity University in Silicon Valley, where they study exponential technology and its ability to solve big challenges. And Salim's been a long time Flow fan. And he just, he happened to look at me. He was like, you know, he said, God, every time you go to a sporting event, every time you go to see the, move, go to the movies, every time you go to a poetry reading or a concert, you're essentially paying to see somebody in flow. And I'll bet if you quantify it, it's a huge chunk of our GDP. And I went, wow, that's a neat idea. I wonder if you could do that. And then when that research started to pile in that William James was right, that all of these different altered states under the hood have the same kind of neurobiological signature, Jamie and I decided to do a study. We wanted to see what we was what we term the altered state economy which is how much money did we spend globally seeking out states where our prefrontal cortex quiets down where we're selfless effortless timeless and in tapping into this richness how much do we spend and we now some of this stuff by the way some of it's conscious and it's positive people come into mind valley and going on meditation retreats and working with flow and some of it is just people chasing unconsciousness with drugs. So not all of this is good, but just to give you an idea of how big this is, what we discovered is that the altered state economy is $4 trillion a year. That one sixteenth of the global economy that is spent trying to shift our consciousness. That is astounding. And because of all the tools and techniques and technologies I've been talking about today, that number is going to continue to grow. So you're looking for a growth industry to build a new business, altered states of consciousness. And I think as a final thought, what I wanna leave you with is the fact that I think all of this information, everything I've been talking about today, puts a wonderful yet horrible burden on each and every one of us. Right? You got to stop. You got to ask yourself, right? what the hell would you do if you could be 500% more productive, if you could boost creativity by 600%, if you could cut learning times in half? Right? What grand challenges, what impossibles are you going to go after? This is exactly what is available to each and every one of us today. But what you choose to do with this information, that is entirely up to you. But thanks for listening.